You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Twenty-five through verse thirty. Twenty-five through verse thirty. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, your word is to be to us light and truth. It is our bread. It is what we eat spiritually, and we desire this morning that we might might partake of that spiritual bread and that you would feed us. We are hungry souls, and we look to your word for truth and for revelation from you, for encouragement, and that the end of what we do here this morning in looking at it may be to the edification of your people and the equipping of the saints for the work of service, and that you would correct in us all of our false thinking and bring us into line with your truth, that you might be glorified in our thoughts, in our hearts, and in our actions. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in Philippians chapter 2, and we are looking at this servant of Christ who became sick after he arrived in Rome to minister to Paul and to deliver the gift from the church at Philippi. His name is Epaphroditus. We started looking at him last week, and I told you that this week when we got together, we would take sort of a brief excursus, and we're going to talk about the subject of sickness and Christians and healing and things of that nature. And I You may ask yourself, why in the world would we talk about that at this juncture in Philippians chapter 2? Well, for a number of different reasons. For one, first, because this really is germane. The subject of Christians and sickness is germane to our text. Whenever somebody comes up with, or or I hear somebody talk about sickness and Christians and healing and miracles, and it's God's will that you always be healthy, or it's God's will that you always be healed, it's never God's will that you be sick, Whenever I hear something like that come across the Christian airwaves or from somebody in the church and some other Christian that I talk to, Philippians chapter 2 is always one of the first passages of Scripture that pops up into my mind. And I say, how do you how do you cram that theology into Philippians chapter 2? The second reason that we're addressing it is because there is presented to us constantly a smorgasbord of false teaching and error on this subject of Christians and healing and physical wellness. It comes to us from pulpits. It comes to us through the Christian airwaves via radio and television. It comes to us in very well-meaning books all over the Internet. People gobble it up. All of us want to be healthy, and really something inside of us, in all of us, wants to believe that it's always God's will for us always to be healthy, no matter what. And so since there is a, a plethora of devilish dreck out there, we want to bring our minds back to the truth and sort of center it again and make sure that we don't fall into a ditch of false teaching. And the third reason is because there's probably no area of practical theology that is more that carries with it more serious consequences than this subject. 
You know as well as I do that I could fill the next 45 minutes, an hour, two hours, five hours, just recounting to you stories of people whose lives have been ruined and some lives that have been lost because they believed wrongly about God's will for them and health and healing and miracles and things of that nature. I could tell you story after story, and I've read them, I've heard them, I've seen them on the Internet, I've seen them on the news broadcast, of parents who have literally watched their children die because they believed it was God's will for them just to believe enough while their child is dying from illnesses or disease or conditions that are very curable, very treatable, but they believe in their mind and in their heart so much that it's God's will to just heal them and that if their child is not healed, that it must be because they lack faith or something must have gone wrong or they haven't visited the right faith healer. We want to address that because we're talking about the lives and the health of people and lives have been lost because they believe wrongly about God's will and physical health and physical healing. Uh, illness and sickness disease is a universal problem, isn't it? We all have gotten sick. We all know people who've gotten sick. We all know people who have come down with diseases. We all know people who have died. We all know people, probably, who have died from diseases. And so it's right for us to spend a few minutes discussing this subject because Philippians chapter 2, in the case of Epaphroditus, and what the Apostle Paul says there is very instructive for us. Now, if you have questions about the subject of miracles just in general, I'm not going to cover all that ground again because when we got to the end of the book of Acts and it wasn't that long ago, we did two messages on the subject of our miracles for today. And for as long as I'm alive, for the foreseeable future, those messages will be on our website so you have access to them and you can go there and you can listen to them. Our miracles for today. It's almost two hours dealing with the subject of miracles from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I'm not going to rehash all of that ground this morning. We're just going to deal with the subject of illness and Christians, sickness and wellness, and what is God's will for us. Is it God's will for us to always be healed? Well, let's look at Epaphroditus, and let me just review a few things real quickly. Epaphroditus had gone from Philippi to Rome, and he had come down sick at some point in that journey or at some point while he was in the city of Rome. Paul says, you heard he was sick, and indeed he was sick. He was sick almost to the point of death. Literally, the Apostle Paul says, he was a near neighbor to death. That's what the, that's what the phrase, at the point of, means. A near neighbor. He was, from the human perspective, dangling over the grave. He had one foot in it and another foot on a banana peel. He was, his life was hanging by a thread. He was very near to death. That's the Apostle Paul's diagnosis of Epaphroditus. Now, what we don't know about Epaphroditus is a lot. We don't know what he had. Was it malaria? Was it cancer? Was it pneumonia? Was it some sort of very treatable illness by our standards or even by their standards? Was it something that was normally treatable and curable? Was it a terminal illness? What were the manifestations of it? That we don't know. Paul doesn't tell us. We wish we had a physician's diagnosis, but we just have Paul's. Also, we don't know when it was that Epaphroditus came down with the illness. You'll notice in verse 27, Paul says he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. Then look down at verse 30. Paul says he became, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. He came close to death and he risked his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. It seems possible, not that Epaphroditus got sick after he arrived at Rome, but listen, that Epaphroditus on the way from Philippi to Rome, which would have been a couple weeks' journey, that he would have come down with the illness. And Paul says he risked his life to get here 
to deliver the money and to offer himself in service to me. It's very possible that when Epaphroditus showed up in Rome, he was sick. And the Apostle Paul wants the Philippians to know just how sick he was. We don't know what it was he had. We don't know when he came down with it, but we do know this. It was very serious. And the Apostle Paul is not just describing this and overemphasizing it for the sake of making Epaphroditus sound like a hero. He was very seriously sick. So here you have a very selfless, very sacrificial servant of Christ who becomes ill on the way to minister selflessly to the Apostle of Christ. And in the process, he becomes so ill that he's literally knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. He is on the verge of death, but God has mercy on him. That's what we know about Epaphroditus. Now with all of that in your mind, let me introduce you to some false teaching. And we will just simply apply what we know about Epaphroditus to the false teaching. There is a whole system of theology out there that kind of falls under this general big umbrella of false doctrine. And here's the big umbrella idea. And the idea is this. It is the birthright of every Christian to be healed and to be healthy. It is the birthright of every Christian to be healed and to be healthy. Now that's sort of the big umbrella idea under which a hundred other little heresies come for shade. And anytime you find somebody who believes that it's God's will for Christians as a birthright to always be healthy, always be healed, never be sick, no diseases, nothing so much as a cough or a headache, anytime you find somebody who believes that, you'll find a hundred other heresies crouching at the door that they also believe. And is it God's will that you always be healed? Theologically, this idea, this sentiment is called healing in the atonement. And I'll tell you where people get it. They get it primarily from two passages, 1 Peter chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 53. You don't have to turn there. I'll read them to you. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter quotes Isaiah 53, so I'll read you both passages. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24 says of Christ, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Listen, here's the money verse, the money phrase, for by His wounds you were healed. By His wounds you were healed. That's a quotation from Isaiah 53, verse 5, where Isaiah writes, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we were healed. So they'll say, there. see, it says right there that in the death of Christ, because of His sufferings and His death on the cross, He purchased for you perfect health. By His wounds, by His stripes, by His scourging, through His suffering in the atonement, He bought for you perfect health. The healing is yours. All you have to do is believe God for it. Because Christ on the cross not only purchased our redemption, not only paid the price for our sin, but He with that purchased your perfect health. That's the teaching. Now is that what 1 Peter chapter 2 and Isaiah 53 are talking about? No. Even just a cursory glance at the text by even a third or fourth grader can tell you that the subject matter is not physical healing, it is sin. It is sin that we are healed of. It is sin that was dealt with at the cross. Not physical healing, not our health and not our wellness. It was sin that was atoned for. It has nothing to do whatsoever with our physical health and our healing. Now friends, all of us here know people who are sick. Christians who are sick. You can look around this room. There are multiple people here who have had back surgeries shoulder surgeries, knee surgeries, hip replacements. There are people with failing eyesight, people with failing hearing. There are people who deal with aches and pains in their joints and arthritis 
and sicknesses and illnesses and physical afflictions every day. And of course, of course, the aforementioned receding hairline that I mentioned last week. All of those things we are plagued with. All of us are. Now what do you tell somebody if you believe that their healing was purchased in the atonement? What do you tell somebody who's sick? Well, people who believe that will fall back on usually two refrains. First, they will say, if you're not healed and if you're not perfectly healthy, then it is due on your part to a lack of faith. If you only had more faith, you would be healed. If you only believed God more, you would be healthy. The problem is not with the faith healer. It's not with His power. It is with your faith. And if you just believed God more, you would be healthy. The healing is there. You just have to believe it. And if you get healed and then you begin to regress a little bit, the problem is with your faith. You just don't have enough faith. And if you believed, you would have it. Is that what Scripture teaches? Let me tell you something. God does not need the failing, faltering, useless human faith of Jim Osmond to do anything. The faith that we have is not a human emotion. It's not something we create. It's not something we muster up. It's not something that we have in our heart that's just waiting to burst forth and we just have to find a way to let the floodgates open and let that faith come out. The faith that we have, the faith that saves us, the faith that sanctifies us, the faith that secures us for eternity is not of our own making. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. It's not a human emotion. It's not something we create. It's not something we muster up. God does not waiting for me to somehow create enough faith so that He can do a miraculous work. He doesn't need my faith. That's not what faith does. Let me ask you something. Is that what you tell a 10-year-old child dying of leukemia? You walk into the hospital room and you tell them, you know what your problem is? You lack faith. Is that what you tell a 10-year-old who's dying? Is that what you tell a seasoned saint who's been a prayer warrior and serving Christ faithfully for 40 years? And they believed God all their life and their faith is dynamic and active. And you walk into their room and they're dying of cancer and you tell them the problem is that you don't have enough faith. Plug that theology into Philippians chapter 2 and see how far you get with it. Does Epaphroditus strike you as a man who was faithless? Does Epaphroditus strike you as a man who had no faith? No faith in God? Not enough faith to be made well? Does the Apostle Paul say that Epaphroditus' problem was that he didn't have enough faith? Does he say that? You have a very faithful man. A very faith-filled man who became sick in the midst of exercising his faith and manifesting his real faith in works toward God and the Apostle Paul. Well, if it's not your problem is not lack of faith, then people who believe that health is the birthright of every Christian will usually fall back on a second refrain. And it's this. Your problem is that there's sin in your life. That's why you're sick. You may have enough faith, but the problem is that you're sinning. And so there must be some sin, some hidden sin, somewhere you don't know about it, but if there weren't sin in your life, you wouldn't be sick. God must be chastening you. Now, I doubt if any of us here, likely, I don't know all of you that well, but I doubt if any of us here would come out and even say it that boldly, but it comes out a hundred other different ways in the things we say. Something bad happens and we say, oh, the Lord must be trying to get my attention. Why do we believe that that's true? Do you think that God doesn't have other ways to get your attention other than to make you sick? If you wanted your attention, you can get your attention. It doesn't have to send an illness to get your attention. Or we say, something bad happened to me, some affliction, some physical ailment, I'm sick. The Lord must be trying to show me something, tell me something. It must be because I did something wrong. 
Listen, that's not the reason for sickness. Not all the time. There are cases in Scripture where sickness was a result of people's sin, most notably the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, because of what they had done with the Lord's Supper. But that's not always the case. It's not that just because you're sick, you therefore have sin in your life, or because you lack faith. Plug that theology into Philippians chapter 2 again and ask you, how far do you get with it? Is that what you tell a little 10-year-old child dying from leukemia? Must be sin in your life. Is that what you tell a seasoned saint? Must be sin in your life. Listen, if you can't take that theology down into the hospital of the people who are dying of terminal illnesses and implement it there, it's a bogus theology. Has nothing to do with lack of faith. Has nothing to do with sin, likely. What does it have to do with? There are Christians who are faithful, Christ-honoring, mature believers who come down with very real, very terminal, very painful illnesses and afflictions. And it has nothing to do necessarily with a lack of faith, and it has nothing necessarily to do with sin. You think Epaphroditus' problem was he had sin in his life? Is that why Paul calls him my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, your messenger, and my minister, and pays him the highest compliment that could possibly be paid to another human being from an apostle? Does Paul describe Epaphroditus as a man in whose life sin had come and so he needed chastening from God? Paul doesn't do that. How does he speak of Epaphroditus? Very highly and very well. Epaphroditus' problem was not lack of faith. Epaphroditus' problem was not sin. What was Epaphroditus' problem? Does it ever occur to us that maybe Epaphroditus didn't have a problem? Maybe it was just illness. It was just a sickness. Many of you know my friends, the Atmores, Brian and Melody. Brian came down here and preached for me last August. And when he was down here this last August, he was unable to bring his wife Melody with him because she was so sick, and I mean severely sick. And she wasn't able to make the hour and 15-minute journey from Creston to here, and Brian had to come down by himself. Because just months prior to him coming down here, she had been diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, the very rare illness for people that are her age. She still struggles with it. And she went in and she sat down and she uh, had gone through all of the blood tests and all of the, you know, the rabbit trails that the doctors send you down to try, finally try and diagnose what it is that you've had. And they weren't able to put their finger on Nobody had ever thought cystic fibrosis because somebody her age having it is so rare. It's just they don't, even, they don't even research it, people having it her age is so rare. They don't even research it, let alone know how to treat it or what to do. So the doctor sat her down and said, you have cystic fibrosis and it's likely going to be something that's going to kill you. And she was kind of shocked at hearing the diagnosis, and her, her doctor said to her, Melody, we all die from something. Now, her doctor is a Christian, goes to their church. He's a solid believer. You may not have appreciated his bedside manner, but let me tell you something. What he said is very profound reality. Melody, we all die from something. We're all going to die from something. Now, Deidre and I and the kids went up and visited the Atmores this last Monday, God has had mercy on her, and not only on her, but also on Brian. Looking at her, she's in the best health that I've seen her in in 16 years. You wouldn't even be able to tell that she looked under the weather, let alone had been as sick as she was. God had done a work. She is in phenomenal health, the best that she's been in since I've known her, because she's been struggling with this. Through the treatments, through the therapy, it wasn't a laying on of hands. It wasn't an anointing. It wasn't a miracle. It wasn't anything phenomenal like that. It was God working through providence and through medicine to restore her to good health. But it was, I believe, a work of God 
It was a work of God in His grace, and He did that. But does God always do that? Not always. Why? Because we all have to die from something, right? It's not always God's will to heal. You'll notice that the Apostle Paul does not say that Epaphroditus had a right to divine healing. Nor does the text in Philippians chapter 2 say that the Apostle Paul healed Epaphroditus. That I find interesting. Do you realize that Paul, Epaphroditus, and other of Paul's traveling companions were ill and sick at times, some of them like Epaphroditus, close to the point of death, and yet we never read of Paul or any of his traveling companions being miraculously healed. Paul got sick, probably with malaria, on his first missionary journey, just as they were going into the region of Galatia. And Paul writes to the Galatians and he says it was because of a bodily illness that we first came to you and preached the gospel. Went up into the regions of Galatia to preach the gospel there. It was drier, probably malaria that he struggled with. And yet we don't read that the Apostle Paul was miraculously healed and got a physical healing at that time. He did get better. He did recover. Paul says that Trophimus was sick. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20. But what did Paul do? Did he heal him? No, Paul writes to Timothy and says, I left him sick at Miletus. Well, thanks, Paul. You can heal a guy on the island of Malta, but you can't heal your good buddy Trophimus. How about Timothy? Timothy had stomach problems. Did Paul heal him? No, he writes to him. He says, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. And what about Epaphroditus? He became close to the point of death, and we don't read that Paul healed him. Why is that? Because the gift of healing was not something to be used at the whim and will of the apostle. It was subject to the will of God. And not everybody got a physical and miraculous divine healing. Paul didn't. And his traveling companions didn't. It's not always God's will to heal Christians because we all have to die from something. Dick Mayhew in his book, Is It Always God's Will to Heal? Or The Healing Promise is the title of it. Is It Always God's Will to Heal? I read this this last year. He lists in there 15 benefits of suffering. And he gives a scripture reference and an explanation of each one of these benefits. And I'm just going to read them to you. I'm not going to expound upon them. I'm just going to read them in list form because I like lists, really like lists. I like lists so much that I have a list of all my favorite lists, and this list is on that list. Here are the 15 benefits of suffering. Whether it's physical ailments or whether it is persecution, these hold to be true. First, it reveals God's divine character. And all you need to think of is the book of Job for that. It reveals God's divine character. It glorifies Christ, John 11, verse 4. It promotes spiritual maturity, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. It displays God's workmanship, John chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. It fulfills God's will, Luke 22, 42. It secures our attention, number 7. It heightens our dependence, Number eight, it encourages others, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Number nine, it conforms us to Christ. Number 10, it authenticates our faith. Number 11, it produces endurance. Number 12, it subdues self-exaltation. If that were the only benefit of suffering, just to subdue the exaltation of ourselves, that would be an immense benefit. Number 13, it chastens sinning saints. Sometimes that is true. Number 14, it provides comfort for ourselves and for others. And number 15, it accomplishes God's unrevealed purposes. That's quite a list, isn't it? Are there benefits to suffering? Sure there are. What was the benefit that came out of Epaphroditus' illness and his brush with death? Do you pick it up from the text? Look at it in verse 27. 
He was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. What was manifested in God sparing Epaphroditus' life? The mercy of God. It was manifested and experienced by Paul, by Epaphroditus, and by the Philippians. So in the midst of Epaphroditus' illness, the mercy of God was manifest. Now what if, listen, what if the only reason God let Epaphroditus get sick and come close to the point of death was just so that he could manifest his mercy? Was it worth it? Worth it. If there's only one thing that God does through our sickness or our illness that might that might help Him be glorified or add to His glory, then it's worth it. And we'll see that it's worth it. Not only here, friends, but also when we get to heaven. So the mercy of God is manifested. So is it always God's will to heal us? Not always, because all of us die from something. Now that's our brief excursus on the subject of Christians and healing. And I know what you're thinking. He sure defines brief differently than I do. We're going to move right on now to verse 28. Therefore I have sent Him... Oh, sorry, we're in verse 27. (laughs) We're not moving as quickly as you had hoped. Verse 27, God had mercy on him, but not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. God had mercy on him, and he had mercy on me. Do you notice how the Apostle Paul describes Epaphroditus as being spared from death? He describes it as mercy. Not something that Epaphroditus had a right to, but something that God did in his mercy to spare his life. Now, this strikes me as a curious thing. And I'll tell you why it strikes me as curious that Paul would describe Epaphroditus' sparing as being God's mercy. Wasn't it back in chapter 1 that we read the Apostle Paul when he said, to depart and be with Christ is what? Far better. Better to leave here and go enjoy the blessings and the glories of heaven than it is to remain on here in the flesh. And yet when the Apostle, when Epaphroditus was spared and Epaphroditus was not allowed to go to heaven, but kept on here in his misery, the Apostle Paul describes it as mercy. To, to quote John Calvin, he says, Wherein is the mercy of God if it merely lengthens our miseries? Wherein is the mercy of God if it lengthens our miseries? If heaven is so much better, and heaven is so much more joyful, and heaven is so much more the better than being here, then how can you describe being kept here as mercy? Because Paul said, I would rather go, but I'll stay here for you guys. My reason for being here is for you, the Philippians. But I'd much rather go to be there. How can he describe that as mercy? It is because life itself is a gift. And life is a valuable gift. I was just talking to somebody about this on Friday night. The longer I live, and the more I learn about heaven, and the more I learn about God, the more I want to go there. Yet the longer I live and the more I learn about heaven and the more I learn about God, the more I want to stay here. I have a hard time explaining how that is true, but it's true. Every day I live, I want to go to heaven even more than the day before. And yet, the longer I live, the more I value life and the more I love living. So that, in the end, for me, if the Lord takes me tomorrow, it's an act of mercy because all of my misery is gone. Not that I would describe my wife and kids as misery, but just living life itself is misery. Yet, every day that the Lord spares my life and allows me to live and to work and to fellowship and to have my feet here on terra firma, every day is an act of mercy. So that as a Christian, whether I depart and go to be with Christ, I get mercy. And whether if He spares my life and I stay here, it's an act of mercy. 
So what do I have to look forward to? Living or dying? Mercy? Early death? Late death? I get mercy. That's the hope and the confidence of a Christian. That whether God grants us long life or short life, we get mercy in the end. Whether He takes us home to be with Him or He allows us to stay here and He spares our life, it's an act of mercy. So all we get is mercy. Mercy upon mercy. And Paul says it was mercy not only to Epaphroditus for God to spare him and to let him live here because life is a precious gift, but it was also an act of mercy toward the Apostle Paul. Why is that? Because here his friend shows up with a gift from the church. He's likely sick when he showed up in Rome. He gets sicker and sicker and sicker, and the Apostle Paul realizes, I'm likely going to have to bury my good friend here in Rome, and I'm going to have to leave him here. And the Philippians are going to have to know that they sent him on this journey and on the midst of the journey and in his service to me in fulfilling what they wanted him to do, he became ill and he died and he gave his life in the cause of Christ to serve another human being. And this would cause Paul immense sorrow. That's why he describes it as it would result for me sorrow upon sorrow. And the image is literally one of wave upon wave. The word upon means to add something to what is already there. It's as if Paul is saying, I have sorrow, I have grief, that is my lot, that is my life, and yet if Epaphroditus were to die here, it would just be another wave of grief and sorrow added to my already grieving and sorrowful existence. There's already grieving and sorrowing being in Rome. And what I think is interesting there is how the Apostle Paul would have handled Epaphroditus' death. Do you ever view, and sometimes I slip into viewing the Apostle Paul in this way, do you ever view the Apostle Paul as sort of a stoic, emotionless, bulldog, sort of determined, uh, I believe so. I believe so strongly in the sovereignty of God and the timing of God that I cannot experience any emotion over anything. You view the Apostle Paul as that? Sometimes I can kind of slip into... I see this rugged determination that the man had, and sometimes I can forget that he was a man of also intense emotion. Something that I try to suppress in my own self is any kind of emotion. But Paul wasn't that way. How would he have responded to Epaphroditus' death? Sorrow. Sorrow. Just because you believe that God is the one who ordains the day of your birth and your death day as well, and he holds that and he knows that and it's written in a book and it's not going to change, just because you believe that doesn't mean that you can't confront, you cannot confront death and the dying of a loved one with a degree of sorrow. I believe that had Epaphroditus died, the Apostle Paul's sorrow would have been real, it would have been deep, and it would have been very meaningful. And it probably would have been very long-lasting sorrow over the death of a friend. There's nothing wrong with sorrowing when somebody dies that we love. Even if we believe in the sovereignty of God and even if we believe that all those things are in His hands, experiencing sorrow and grief is a good thing. We mourn, but not like those who have no hope. We mourn as those who understand there's going to come a day and the trumpet's going to sound and we're going to go to be with the Lord. There's going to be a resurrection and we're all going to be together in heaven again. That's how we mourn. And that's how the Apostle Paul would have mourned. Sorrow upon sorrow. Now, verse 28 takes us to the last of the two reasons why Paul is sending Epaphroditus home. Remember, we started this all the way last week, even before our brief excursus into Christians and sickness. We started looking at the three reasons Paul was sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi. The first was in verse 20-something up in the text, because you were distressed. He was distressed. Epaphroditus was. He was distressed because he had heard that they had heard he was sick. And we looked at that last week. The last two reasons are in verse 28, and they don't need any comment from me but I'm going to give some anyway. Verse 28, Therefore I've sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you will rejoice. Because as far as we know, all that the Philippians had heard was that Epaphroditus was sick and that it was likely serious. And so they're back home worrying. They can't go online and check to see how Epaphroditus is doing. There's likely been no communication back to the church, and they're wondering and worrying, 
And Paul knows they're worrying, and so he's going to send Epaphroditus back. And when Epaphroditus shows up with the letter, they would see that he was good, he was in good health, he had, a mission had been accomplished, and he had faithfully served, and they would rejoice. The last reason he's sending them back is for Paul's own sake, so that I'll be less concerned about you. Paul couldn't go to the church. He couldn't send Timothy to the church because he needed Timothy there, but he could send Epaphroditus. And so he says, I'm going to send him with the letter, and then I'll be less concerned about you. Now, what do we learn from Epaphroditus. Let me give you three statements and then we're done this morning. What do we learn from Epaphroditus? Here they are. Number one, even faithful, sacrificial, selfless, godly servants of Christ get ill and get sick and even die from those sicknesses. Even the most sacrificial, selfless, godly servants of Christ get sick and even die from those sicknesses. The second thing we learn from Epaphroditus is that in the midst of illness, God manifests His own character and His mercy to us. Whether it be taking us home to be with Him, or whether it be sparing our lives and allowing us to stay here with our loved ones. That His mercy is manifested, and His character is displayed. And then the third thing that we learn, and we're going to look at this in more detail next week as we finish up chapter 2 and begin chapter 3, is that men like Epaphroditus should be admired and even imitated. Men like Epaphroditus should be admired and even imitated. And we'll look more at that next week as we wrap up Philippians chapter 2. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank You that You are sovereign and that we can trust You in health and in sickness. We thank You that You are good to us in everything, and it is because of Your goodness that no matter what happens to us, comes to us via that goodness. And so we know that we can trust You whatever ill may befall us. We have no right to any blessing, and there is nothing in us that deserves even the slightest blessing from Your hand. But You give and You give and You give again. Blessings beyond number. And we thank You for the health that we do enjoy, some of us in better health than others, We thank You for every day of mercy that You give us here on this earth. And when it comes time for us to become ill, and when it comes time for us to die, and we are like Epaphroditus, a near neighbor to death, then we pray that You would give to us the grace to handle it in a way that is honoring and glorifying to You and a testament to Your grace that we might say with the hymn writer, I'll love Thee in life, I will love Thee in death, and praise Thee as long as Thou lendest me breath. And say when the death dew lies cold on my brow, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. We ask this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.